morning. You guys are having a, a good start to the year. Hopefully you spent the last week in uh, some reflection from Psalm 85 and really diving into the topic of revival and crying out to God to revive us again. Um, we are continuing our revival series uh, this week. And last week, you know, I told you that you know, there are going to be parts in this series where it's going to be uncomfortable. One of them was, like we said last week, in order for us to walk in revival, we have to acknowledge that there may be parts of our life where we're walking in death, where maybe we've given in to our uh, flesh instead of following after God's Spirit. And God really wants to get us uh, focused on the heart of the matter, not just the you know, external manifestation of the sin that might be in our life, but He wants to go where that sin Originates, And we said that you know, part of the reason that we're not experiencing revival or walking in the life that God has created us for is because we have allowed the world to come in and infiltrate and change us instead of being in a position where we go out and change and infiltrate and impact the world. And even in our walk with God, we have given into our flesh instead of His Spirit, and that always leads to death. But one thing that we know is that we have hope. God, it's God's will to bring us to revival, and we know that that source of revival comes from Christ. We can have church without life. We can read our Bible without life. We can sing worship songs all without life if we are looking to those things themselves for the life. Rather, we know that Jesus is the one that brings life and brings revival. We know that revival is not about more religion. It's not about ritual. It's not about, you know, well, I got to make sure I'm in church every day, you know, if we're the, just for the checking of the box. Rather, revival comes when we have a deeper and a greater connection with God. We know that we will only experience God's mercy when we walk in his truth. It's not about my truth. It's not about what's convenient for me. It is about what he says through his word and his spirit. We know that we are not left alone in revival, that God's righteousness comes and he makes our feet and our path into a way. We know that he will give us that direction that we need and the ability to understand his will. Last week, we talked about the fact that we were, you know, it was about coming to an individual and collective agreement that revival is needed. We talked about, and hopefully, and you're, you're feeling that need. I did have some conversations with uh, some folks after Sunday, and it, to me, it seems like we are at that point where we agree that revival is needed, but we must be united in that desire for revival to come now, right? I don't want God to revive us eventually. I want him to revive me right now. I want to walk in his life in this second and every second forward from here, and I look forward to what we're going to be doing because uh, today we begin a journey. We begin a journey to understand what the requirements for revival are. We're going to be spending time in the Old Testament over the next several weeks and looking at the times where God manifested his presence among his people in a way that brought revival and life to them. We're going to look at why they were even in need of revival in that time and what God did to bring that revival, and then therefore the lessons that we can take from that. Before we dive into this process, though, we need to surrender to God. We need to give him that permission to speak truth to us. We need him to speak so clearly and plainly that we hear his voice in our spirits, and I would pray even in our ears, that we know what we must do. Not that our actions bring revival, rather that our actions demonstrate our desire for revival. So let us pray and give this time to the Lord. Father, we come to you today, God, and 
truthfully, I look forward to what you're going to do today. God, I know that you have a word for us, your people. Father, and I would just pray that we are, we are coming to you in a position ready to hear. Not so that we would be like the people in, in, in the Bible that we're hearing, but never understanding or seeing, but never perceiving, Father. Let us understand in our own spirit. God, put us in a position right now where we are humbling ourselves. We are opening our minds, opening our spirits to you. Father, we are here gathered in your name, and your word says that when we are gathered in your name, you are here among us. Father, let us feel your presence, not for the experience alone, God, but for the transformation that comes with the experience. God, in this moment, I bind the enemy in the name of Jesus. Any work that the devil would want to be doing among your people, I come against it through the blood of Christ, and I speak the authority of your name in this place and release you to do your work and overcome anything that the devil may want to combat in this time. God, fill this place, fill these people with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin this journey, we are going to start in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we see Solomon has finished the temple and God's presence comes down on the temple. To give some context as to the importance of the temple, we see that you know, the temple was that place from which God dealt with his people. But we have to go even farther back in history to understand the significance of this moment in time. You see, uh, Solomon built the temple in the mid-10th century, so uh, he reigned from 930 BC, or rather 970 BC to 930 BC. And so sometime in that reign, he builds the temple. But when we go all the way back to when God pulled the, the nation of Israel out of Egypt after they were enslaved for 400 years, there, he's leading them through the wilderness for 40 years. And his presence went before them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as you read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you see that God gives Moses some very specific instructions for a, a, a building, if you will. It was a tent. It was called the Tent of Meeting, or it was called the Tabernacle. And in this place, uh, it would be that God, his presence would fall on that place and then would stay there. And if the people of Israel would know, okay, well, if God's presence is over the Tent of Meeting, we're going to stay where we are. But if God's presence moves, then it's time for us to move. So what they would do is, as God's presence settled in a place, they would set up the tent of meeting. God's presence would rest over the tent, maybe for a day, maybe for a week, maybe for a month, maybe for a year. And then when God says, you know what, it's time for you to move, he moved. And they would tear down the tent of meeting and they would carry it in a very specific way until the next place that God's presence stopped. And then they would set the tent of meeting up and it would go follow this cycle all through the years that they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, God brings them to the promised land. And for 300 years, they failed to build him a permanent place. King David says, well, I want to fix it. I want to build God a temple. And God kind of says to him, he's like, do you think I need a temple? Do you really think this is necessary? And David says, no, God, I want to do it. And he says, well, you're not going to build my temple. Your son is going to build my temple. You see, David because of what he had done with Bathsheba, because of the fact that his entire reign was, was really just colored with, with battle after battle, God says there's been too much bloodshed and your time as king, your son 
will build my temple. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, Solomon begins his work on the temple, and seven years later he finishes in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, if you, we don't have time to go through it today, but I would encourage you to read it. This is Solomon's dedication of the temple. His prayer over the building, his prayer over the people, his prayer to God about the need for God's presence among his people. And we pick it up in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, because after Solomon's prayer, it says, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of God on the temple, they bowed down with their faces on the ground, on the pavement, and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. What a beautiful picture of what, of what revival looks like. We talked last week that revival is not about religion. It is about a deeper walk with God. And, and what that means for us is that we need his presence to be manifest among us. So that we can go from a place of saying, well, I've heard about God or I've read about God to now I know God. I have felt his presence. I have experienced what it means to be with him. Again, not because that experience is something to be pursued, rather the transformation that comes with being in God's presence. But it says something beautiful in this passage. It says that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In the original language, that that phrase means that his presence, his glory, was so thick, was so abundant, that it was heavy. It was heavy. Can you imagine what it would feel like to feel the weight of God's glory over you? To be in a place where you feel his presence so heavy on you that the only response is to do what they did, to fall to the ground, your face so close and on the pavement in worship. You see, when we experience revival, when God's presence comes upon us, we worship him. We recognize that this is not about me. It's not about you. It is about God Almighty. And the beautiful thing, the promise that God gives us is that this experience in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 was not meant to be a singular experience. You see, Paul writes in in a couple different places explaining to us that we are the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians 1, it says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That means that the glory that is heavy on the temple in 2 Chronicles 7, God says, I want my glory to be heavy in your life. I want you to feel the weight of my presence. I want you to understand the thickness of my spirit. I want you to be affected by my life being infused into yours. That he would dwell in us. But not just in us individually. That's what 1 Corinthians 1 is about. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes about how we are saved by grace through faith. But then in that we are made together as the body of Christ, the temple, the church. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So because of our salvation, we are brought together, aligned with other saints and believers. We are built on the foundation that the apostles laid, but Christ is the cornerstone. And we are brought together and made one into the temple of God. And it says, in him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, God is saying to us, he promises to send his Spirit. Not just to descend on us, but to dwell in us. This promise is not implied in these verses. It is explicitly stated that that is what God will do. In our lives. You see, we are the temple of God. And what we read in, about in Second Chronicles 7 can and will happen in our lives. But in order to walk in that kind of revival, in order to walk under the weight of his presence, under the thickness of his spirit, we have to understand what the requirements are. We can't just look forward and, and look ahead and anticipate the promise without understanding what it is required from us in order to do that. And, and God was very uh, explicit with Solomon about this. You see, God had spoken to Solomon. After Solomon prayed and God's presence fell on the temple that night, God speaks to Solomon. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Okay, we need to stop right here and understand a few things. Because God says that he has chosen the temple for himself. He says, this is going to be my house and it is to be a house of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, what that meant to those that were receiving this information was that this would be the place that burnt offerings would be offered on an annual basis or that, that the sin sacrifice would be offered on an annual basis to cover the sins of the people. But since you and I, we just read and understand that we are the temple of God, we are that place that he has defined as his house and he has defined this house as a house of sacrifice. So what does that mean for me? What does it mean for you? It means that I must walk in sacrifice. I must carry my cross every day. I must die to myself, my flesh, every day. I live in the sacrifice that God calls me to as his child. And then God goes on. He says, well, when the heavens are shut out or when the locusts come or when pestilence comes. But it's not a random weather event when the, when the rains don't come. That's not a random weather or you know, natural phenomenon when the locusts are come. What, what, what he says is, when I shut the heavens, when I send the locusts, when I send plague and pestilence among my people. Why would God do this? Why would God send this kind of punishment? Why would he address Solomon in this way? Well, it's because he said, I have called this temple my house, and it will be a house of sacrifice. 
He says, if my people don't bring the sacrifices to my house, if they send those sacrifices and use those sacrifices to prostitute themselves to other gods, punishment will come. He says, if my people don't come and worship me in a place and manner that is made holy by my presence, punishment will come. You see, Solomon, when you read 2 Chronicles chapter 6, he's a king addressing God with the expectation of the failure of his people. He says to God, now God, when, when your people, when they begin to worship other idols, and then they experience your judgment, and they come back to this temple, God, give them grace. And God says to Solomon, he says, Solomon, I've heard your prayer. I've heard your prayer. Yes, this is my house. It is a house of sacrifice. But you need to understand that with sin, punishment will come. The message for us today is that if we work against God, he will work against us. This is not a comfortable or easy message or picture of God to walk with. We like to think about God from Romans chapter 8, where it says that, you know, he's going to work everything according to our benefit. Well, what's the rest of that verse? It says, for those who believe and are called according to his purpose. So I I demonstrate my belief based on James chapter 2 through my actions that align with his calling. You see, my life, when it demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit, God will work my circumstance to my benefit. But if I work against him, he will work against me. I cannot forget that the magnitude of God's grace is matched by the magnitude of his holiness. And because of that, I have to include justice and judgment among his characteristics. If this doesn't jive with your Jesus, then you are worshiping the wrong Jesus. Jesus was the literal embodiment of God's grace. But he was only the literal embodiment of God's grace because he received the complete, he was the recipient of God's complete judgment. Jesus was only the embodiment of grace because he was the recipient of judgment for us. You see, Jesus came and he resolved this tension that exists between God's holiness that requires perfection and his love that requires grace. And so Jesus comes and he surrenders himself as the perfect sacrifice, as a gift of grace for all of God's people. But if we reject the gift of grace, judgment is the only alternative. Jesus himself talked about this. He talked about the fact that if you don't follow him, if you don't believe in him, you will not walk in eternal life. You will walk in eternal judgment. You will walk in eternal punishment in a place of eternal and everlasting destruction. We must get to a place where we understand that our physical situation is often connected with our spiritual condition. Now, now hear me, I am not saying that every difficult circumstance, everything that you go through, I am not saying that everything is linked to sin. What I'm saying is you cannot discount the fact that many times it is. You see, 
what I understand and know about God is that he loves us so much that he will do whatever he can to bring us from a place of death and into a place of life. And so in that, he is going to do one of two things and, and that will affect my physical circumstance. He will test me to grow me in my faith. He will test me to teach me to depend on him. But he will also judge me when I do not. He will judge me when I sin. He will judge me when I fall outside of his grace, when I fall outside of his way, and I choose to follow my way. The good news, even though this is a challenging situation to find ourselves in, the good news is that the answer in both situations is the same. We turn to God. We turn to him. We surrender to him. Now, you've heard that statement in in regards to the test. You've heard the statement. You might have even said the statement that God is not going to test me beyond what I can bear. That is not in the Bible. That is not in the Bible. You might say, John, I can show you the scripture. Don't worry, we're going to go there. But listen, I think the opposite is true. I think God will absolutely test you beyond what you can bear. If he doesn't, why would you ever realize that you need him? If you could solve every problem in your own strength, if you could solve every circumstance that comes against you, if you were never experiencing pain to the point of brokenness, why would you ever cry out to him? Rather, I believe that God will bring us to the point of brokenness so we will cry out to him. So let's address this scripture point blank. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, before you say, pastor, I told you, Yes, those words are in the Bible, but that is not what the Bible says. Let's read it again. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So when we look at this, this last sentence is so important. Because the previous sentence ends, but the idea, the promise continues. He says, when you are tempted, when you are tested, God will provide the way out. So let's, let's remove the provision and see how that affects the sentence. If God doesn't provide a way out, I will not be able to endure the test. Do You see, this is a promise that I will be tested beyond what I can bear. Let's think about Gideon for a moment. In Judges chapter 7, God has told Gideon, you are going to lead an army against the Midianites. The Midianites had oppressed the nation of Israel to a point that they were hiding in the mountains. When God sent uh, the angel of the Lord to find Gideon, he was hiding in a hole. And God said, Gideon, you are going to lead an army against the Midianites. Now the Midianites had an army of about 135,000 men. Gideon mustered his troops and he got 32,000. A four-to-one ratio. And hand-to-hand combat. I don't know about you, I would not want to lead that army. But God says to Gideon, hey Gideon, you've got too many troops. You've got too many because when I deliver the nation of Israel, if, you, if I deliver 32,000 of them, they will begin to think that they did it. And so he says, tell everybody that's afraid that they can go home. 
22,000 people go home. So you might say, okay, well, now Gideon has 10,000. There's 135,000. It's a 14 to 1 ratio now, God. Are we good? No, no, no. God says, Gideon, your army is still too big. Because when I deliver them, and they've defeated 14 soldiers for every one, they will still think that they did it. Take them down to the river. Gideon walks into a battle with 300 men against 135,000. If they were to fight this battle, each soldier from Israel would have to overcome and defeat 450 men on his own. And you know what God did? God sent the the nation of Midian into a battle against itself and defeated them overnight, and all all Israel had to do was come in and take the plunder. Gideon was tested beyond what he could bear. You will be tested beyond what you can bear. But the answer is that God is the way out. That all you have to do is raise your hand and cry to him and say, help me, I'm in the middle of a test. I'm in the middle of a circumstance. I don't know what to do. I need help. Now, in the first service, people hadn't heard this phrase that I'm about to say, and, and I'm happy for that because it's not true. But I want to I ask, have you ever heard that God is going to be silent in the middle of the test because the teacher is silent during the test? Anybody ever heard that? No, I'm so glad because it's not true. It is not true. What, what the words that we just read tell me that in the middle of my test, if I just raise my hand, if I cry out to God, he'll be there. We have teachers in the room. Many of them. It would be like if your student said, you know, excuse me, I don't understand this question in the middle of a test. And and you don't just give them the answer, but you walk them through how to solve it. You lead them to the solution. That is what God will do for each and every one of us when we cry out to him in the middle of our circumstance. Jesus helps us understand this. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, a simple sentence that encapsulates what it means to experience revival. Because blessed are the poor in spirit means you are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. Because with less of you, there is more of God. That's what that scripture says in the message translation. So when we get to a place of humility, when we break ourselves down and realize that I can't do it on my own, I can't fix my circumstance by myself, and I cry out to God in the middle of my test, he not only provides the way out, he is the way out. I inherit the kingdom of heaven. Not at some point in the future, but in the moment that I cry out to God, he is there. He will lift us up. But what if our circumstance is not because of a test? What if our circumstance is because of judgment? Again, the answer is similar. We go to God. But God gave some specific instructions to Solomon. He says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. When we look at this, we must realize first and foremost that this passage is not written to the world. It is not written to sinners. Who is it written to? 
if my people who are called by my name. It is written to the children of God. It is written to Christians. It's written to us. God says, if you are experiencing judgment in your life, you need to recognize that you're my child and you need to live by my ways. If we want to experience revival, we must acknowledge that God is speaking to us. When we look at this, we understand that you know, revival means that we need to be brought to life. Sinners aren't brought back to life, they are simply brought to life. Now they experience the benefit of revival. When the church is revived, when, when we as Christians are revived and we experience the weight of God's presence in our life, The world around us receives the benefit. The sinners around us can experience change. But the reason the sinners around us remain unchanged is maybe because God's people who are called by by his name are not living according to his word. Maybe it's because we haven't done what he has called us to do. Maybe it's because we've chosen death over life. God says, if my people who are called by my name Humble themselves and pray. We could separate that instruction. We could talk about the importance of humility separate from the importance of prayer, but I think that would be a mistake. Because one reason that we may not be experiencing revival is because our prayers lack humility. The humility implies and inherent, inherent in it is a willingness to submit to authority. The word in the definition says it's a bowing of the knee or a bowing of the head to the one that is over you. The Israelites struggled with this to a point that God called them a stiff-necked people. So when you read that in, in, in your daily Bible reading, when you read that in your own study and you see God calling them They are a stiff-necked people. It's because they have pride. It's because they aren't bowing their head. They're not willing to submit to God. God says that we must submit to him. If we aren't submitting to him, we aren't making spiritual contact. Our prayers are not coupled with that humility. He doesn't pay attention. Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 4. I'm going to read the first eight verses. Um, in your Bible, if you're following along in version, you'll be uh, right there. Uh, but follow with me in James 4, 1 through 8. He says, What causes uh, quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You ask with wrong motives, your translation might say, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or conflict or strife with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The people that James is writing to, 
in the New Testament, by the way, had become so covetous that they were resorting to murder. They realized my neighbor has something that I want, so I'm going to go kill my neighbor so I can have it. Instead of just asking God to meet their need. And James says, in, in, if you don't kill your neighbor and you do ask God, you're not going to get what you ask for because you're asking with the wrong motives. You're asking for your own gratification. He says you have to change your heart. He says that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor and grace to the humble. Do you want God to come into your life? Do you want God to demonstrate revival and bring his presence to you? James says, submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands of sin. Purify your heart of idolatry. If we want to experience revival, if we want God to hear our prayer, we must offer that prayer in humility because the prayer that moves God is the one that is offered to him on his terms. We must approach God with the recognition of who he is. He is God Almighty. He made everything. He spoke this universe into existence. Who are we to cry out to him to say, just meet my need, gratify my flesh? That is nothing more than spiritual pornography. When you objectify God that way. God says that if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, and they seek my face. You see, God is calling to his people, and he says, you must seek my face. If you want to experience change, not just in your circumstance, but in your heart, then come into my presence. And we seek his face, again, not on our terms, but on his, that we seek his face only. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, 33, he says, seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. He is not a focus of our life. He is the focus of our life. And this is exactly what God is addressing with the people in 2 Chronicles 7. You see, later on in verse 19, he calls the people out because they were worshiping idols. And the reason that they worshiped idols was not just because, well, the worship service at the idol church was better than the worship service at their church. That's not, they weren't just worshiping those idols for the fun of it. They were worshiping the idols so that the idols would meet their need. This is preposterous. They, these, this nation had experienced God's power and revival like none other. Delivered from 400 years of slavery. As they are leaving Egypt and they approach the Red Sea, God splits the Red Sea. Two million people walk through on dry ground and then the weight of the Red Sea crushes the army that is chasing them. Day after day for 40 years, they are given food. They are given water. At times from a rock, at times they throw a stick into a lake. My children... I fear that we are. I fear that we are sacrificing our children on the altar of convenient Christianity. You see, when we go outside of God 
for provision, we have adopted an idol. So, so when you think about a job, when you look to your job or a promotion or, or money or credit cards or whatever, when you look to that for financial security, instead of the God who owns a thousand or the cattle on a thousand hills for provision, you have adopted an idol. When you look to your friends or you look to social media or you know what, I just got to have time in front of the TV. Instead of seeking God's word for peace and hope and truth, you have adopted an idol. When you look to your spouse or your significant other for validation, for approval, for love, outside. You see, when we look for something outside of God to provide in our situation, we cut off God's intervention into our circumstance. We cancel it. If God, think about it. We go to God, help me in this way. And then we look for something else to help us in that way. God says, well, if you think they're going to help you, okay. I'll wait until you realize the error of your ways. Until you reach that place of brokenness and darkness. We cannot. We cannot. God says, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. To think that God's people would have wicked ways is a problem all in itself. The reason that the Israelites would would worship other idols and the reason that we go to them is because there is no accountability for sin with an idol. People like idols because they can use the word God without the boundaries that God brings. You see, God is holy, like we said, and there is a requirement for us to walk in his righteousness. If we want his life, we walk in his truth, right? We said that last week. I think about the prodigal son. The prodigal son said to his father, give me my inheritance. In our vernacular, he said to his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. And his father, he gives him the money and he goes off and he squanders it and he finds himself in a place of judgment. God wasn't testing this man. He was in consequence for his sin. He found himself broke, without any friends, working at a pig farm. Something revolting enough, but then he was so hungry that he was willing to eat what the pigs ate. And he said, I want revival in my circumstance. I want change in this place. Did he write his father a letter? Hey, dad, send more money. No. What did he do? He went back to the place where the boundaries were established. He went back and said, I submit to the boundary. To a point he says, I don't even submit as a son. I submit as a servant. And his father, and the place where those boundaries that he had established brought life back to his son. Wrapped him in a robe, gave him a ring, put shoes on his feet, 
killed a fatted calf. You see, when we go back to the place of God's boundaries, we experience revival. If we are outside of the place of his boundaries, we will experience judgment. We must acknowledge this. You see, turning away from our wicked ways requires two things. It requires us to acknowledge that the way is wicked, and then we must turn away from it. I can't just look at my sin and say, well, I made a mistake. Again. It's just a bad habit. Well, that's just the way I was made. Well, God understands. It's just part of my personality. Listen, if I lessen it to those things, what I'm doing is I am not calling it what God calls it. And if I don't call it what God calls it, I'm not releasing him to address the sin. I'm not releasing him to address my circumstance. If I want change, I need to call my sin what God calls it. I need to recognize that my sin is an affront to him. And that he he calls me to change. If we want revival, this is what we must do. We must turn to him in repentance. I must feel the same way that God feels about my life and then turn from that wicked way and to him. You see, the Bible is so clear that repentance brings revival. In Acts chapter 3, it says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may, may come from the Lord. In Ezekiel 18, it says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Acts 2 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 7 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Proverbs 28 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them, what do they find? They find mercy. First John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 1 says that repent at my rebuke, then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. Are you having a hard time understanding the Bible? Maybe you need to repent. Because he says, when we repent, he makes known his teachings to us. Revelation 3 says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Repentance was the crux of John the Baptist's message. He came out of the wilderness and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus, when he started his ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. It is is upon us. But if we want to experience the kingdom of heaven, if we want to walk in the kingdom of heaven, we must repent. And what we see, I love this verse from Revelation. You see, it's from Revelation 3 in the letter to the church in Laodicea. And that church was useless they weren't, they, weren't, they weren't doing anything for God. And God says that you make me want to puke. And what does he give them? He gives them grace. He says, repent, repent. 
He says, the reason that you experience judgment, the reason that you experience this circumstance is because I love you. Don't you see that I love those or those that I discipline, I love. I had a dad that would always say, John, the spanking that you're getting hurts me more than it hurts you. I don't know that I ever believed him. But the message that he was telling me The message that he was telling me was, John, I love you too much to let you grow and walk in a way that doesn't align with the boundaries of my house. When we experience judgment, what we need to hear from God is, child, I love you too much to let you grow and walk in a way that doesn't align with the boundaries of my house. Recognize that he loves you. That even the circumstance that you are in is an element of his grace. Because if Jesus were to come back in the next breath, and we were not walking in salvation, let me tell you, that circumstance, that's one. You don't want to find yourself in. That is the one of eternal destruction, everlasting pain, everlasting separation from So out of his love, he sent Christ so that we could walk in salvation. We could receive that gift. But to do that, to walk in life, we must repent. And the promise that comes with it all, he says, if my people who were called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, listen to what he says, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. You see, when we do these things together, it's not about repenting alone. It's not about seeking God's face alone. It's not about humbling ourselves and praying alone. No, when I humble myself and pray, when I seek God's face, and when I turn from my wicked ways, heaven will pay attention. My sins will be forgiven. God will bring healing into my life and into the world around me. This is why we are called those, those, that instrument of life. That's why Jesus says we are the light of the world. But I need him to, to, to be in me with his presence so that that light is light. You might be here today experiencing a circumstance that you don't understand. You might be here in... in, in be in the middle of a test or you might be in the middle of judgment hear me this morning don't call your judgment a test okay don't call your judgment a test because then you won't do what God is calling you to do if you are here in the middle of a test cry out to God and he will be there if you are in the middle of judgment recognize that sin, and do what God says. Because you will not experience relief in your physical circumstance until you address the spiritual condition. The beauty is that when we experience the spiritual, or when we, when we address the spiritual condition, God will bring life to the physical circumstance. He will give us, even if it doesn't go away, He will lead us through it and help us to endure 
The question that we all have to ask ourselves today is, are we ready for revival? I started out and I said, we, we, we agree that we need revival, but I want that revival now. I want to walk in his presence in this moment and from ever, forever on. So are we ready for revival? And if so, are we willing to do what's required to experience it? Only you know the answer for that in your life. But you need to understand the impact that that has on everyone else. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's writing, and he says, Some of you are sick. Some of you have died. Because some of you, actually he says many of you are sick, and many of you have died, because some of you have not appropriately approached the body of Christ. So the sin in your life, the things that you're holding on to, it affects the life that can be infused into the body around you. It's more than just about you. It is about God and what he wants to do through us as his temple to make a difference in this world in his name. Let's pray. Father, I come to you today and I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. God, I I believe that you are speaking to your people in this moment. God, show us. Show us where we are in the middle of a test or in the middle of judgment. God, if we are in the middle of of a test, let us come running to you. Let us raise our hand and cry out for help. Let us recognize that you will lead us and empower us to endure that circumstance as we depend on you. But if we are in the middle of judgment, if our circumstance is a consequence of our sin, Help us to acknowledge that that sin is sin. Help us to acknowledge that it is an affront to you. Help us to see the need to surrender it to you. God, in this place, in this moment, we humble ourselves. We bow before you. We come to you in prayer, in submission, with a commitment, Lord. We are resisting the devil. God, we are drawing near to you with the expectation that you will draw near to us, God. Cleanse us from sin. Purify us from our idolatry, God. Help us, Lord, to to put you first above everything else and recognize that you are the one that provides all of our needs. Not just materially, Lord, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Break our hearts by our sin. And let us turn from our wicked ways. God, we are here and we are crying out to you in this place, Lord, and we trust that you will be true to your word, that you, right even now, there is someone that, is, that you are hearing that you haven't heard for a while, not because you were incapable, God, but because now they have come to you on your terms. Hear from your throne in heaven. Forgive our sin and heal our land. Heal our life and the world around us. We worship you and we thank you for your work and your word and your son. In Jesus' name. Amen.